You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 87. We're in where we are going to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, written by Ernest Lehman, starring Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason, and Martin Landau. Did I say that this film came out in 1959? I forget, but it came out in 1959. Yeah, it did. And it's a MGM Studio Pictures. The synopsis for this film is a New York City advertising executive goes on the run after being mistaken for a government agent by a group of foreign spies and falls in love with a woman whose loyalties he begins to doubt. This one is full of twists and turns. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yes, they did. Let's see. 20 years after the uh, term gaslighting, you know, was was a movie. (laughs) Right. I have four taglines for you to choose from this week. Four. Well done. Okay, I'm going to lay them on you. Ready? Ready. A lot of them sound like marketing, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Alfred Hitchcock takes you north by northwest. Oh, yeah. That one's not strong out of the gate. Not strong. It's a deadly game of tag and Cary Grant is it. Again, they're relying on name dropping. Yeah. I think they can do better. Yeah. Although, is that, it'd be curious to look at the history of taglines because is that what's happened is they were used for marketing purposes, but then they became like clever, I don't know, catchphrases or something. Huh. That would be interesting. So if some famous screenwriter, Frank Darabont, John August, or somebody wants to call into the show, send an email, let us know. (laughs) Help us Uh, out. Yeah. Christy at DodgeMediaProductions.com. A 2,000 mile chase that blazes a trail of terror to a gripping, spine chilling climax. Okay, that sounds a little bit more like you would see on the the title card at the end of the trailer. Right. (laughs) A spine tingling climax. Yeah, said in that voice, right? Of course. Okay, let me see if I can win you over with this last one. Okay, the last one. We're holding out hope. (laughs) It's love and murder. At first sight. Okay, there you go. There you go. Uh-huh. You like that one? Yeah, it's shorter, it's punchy, and mm-hmm. it tells us what we're in for. All right, there we go. Okay, director's trademark. He was seen within the first few minutes, and he did this because it became a thing, and then he didn't like to do it in the middle of the movie because then it would take the audience out of it. And so he started doing it then in the beginning. I think my director's trademark is that I'm never in my own films. <laughs> That's going to be yours. Yeah, <laughs> You're yeah, never in yeah. there. Here's some trivia for you. While on location at Mount Rushmore, Eva Marie Saint discovered that Cary Grant was charging fans 15 cents for an autograph. That's such an odd price. Because, <laughs> well, maybe back then it wasn't. But a dime or a quarter, but 15 cents, that's two coins. Right. He's just making his own life miserable. <laughs> I told you that because back in the day, a double-double was 15 cents, right? Oh, heck, I, 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 don't, I don't remember the original price, I shamefully. Thought, Oh, you told me this one time, though. I probably did, but remember Memory of a Goldfish. Okay. And so I said, oh, I think he was just a Double Double fan and he was collecting. I would love if that was the case. That he Let's had make like it a rumor. The, the Skippy peanut butter jar that he'd washed out and then he <laughs> put the 15 cents in and then he would go by whenever, whenever he was in town. Yeah. 
So this is not so funny here, but he he lived to tell the tale. James Mason suffered a, a severe heart attack shortly after filming ended. Wow. I that know. Pretty intense. Maybe Hitchcock scared him. Boo. MGM tried to persuade Al- Sir Alfred Hitchcock to use their Ultra Panavision system, which utilized 65 millimeter with a slight anamorphic squeeze. When projected, the image would be free of grain and quite wide. So this is probably 59. Yes, this was a time when televisions, I believe TVs came like TVs and homes became popular in like 54, 55. And so a lot of people were staying home because they just didn't, you know, they were getting good enough pictures in their own homes. And so they didn't go to the cinema. So studios are trying to really kind of do these big, huge things. It's like, it doesn't look like this in your living room. So you need to come into the theater. So they were trying to do this, but Hitchcock balked. And he at using this large format and instead insisted on going with VistaVision, which was a format that was used in several Paramount Pictures productions. Going with Ultra Panavision would have meant that the score would have never been heard in magnetic stereo. The VistaVision print used optical mono sound and ironic, ironic that the version shown now has an entirely new soundtrack mixed into the stereo. So was VistaVision known for saturated colors? Because I felt like these are pretty saturated. Yes, that is one of its characteristics. And now, because I'm old, I can say I like it when the saturated colors. It makes it look fun like a big epic picture. <laughs> yes. And I, I asked you after, because I read this next bit of trivia while we were watching the film, and I didn't want to poison the well, and so I let the film play to its entirety. And I asked you if you sensed any sort of effeminism from the henchman of that Martin Landau was playing Leonard, or if you sensed that he had a crush on like James Mason's character. And you said, I I never got a crush, but I did note it was very, I don't don't want to say odd, but odd for the time when he said, call it my woman's intuition. Right. And I thought that was odd, that gender bending comment for 1959. So Landau thought that this was, he was making a choice for his character. He wanted his character. I, I think I read that he wanted the character to be a little bit more effeminate. So I don't know if he was making the stand that this character would be gay and that James Mason and his character Leonard were a couple or that Leonard was just so loyal to James Mason's character, which is... Van Damme, I think. Yes. Philip Van Damme. Yep. Not Jean-Claude. Right. So that was a choice that he made. And anyway, the production code had a problem with it. And so they maybe and maybe that's why we didn't register it is they took out some scenes. And so this film doesn't have a rating. It just got accepted. Okay, now this is one of the few remakes. I want I want this to be remade with Nathan Lane as Leonard. (laughs) Well, that's true. It wouldn't be subtle. (laughs) He could do like Channel Pepper for Modern Family. Right. Because <laughs> oh. I was like, well, but does he need to have that edge? You know, but I don't feel like Martin Lando was really the heavy. He, he, I don't think he was. He had one scene where he like stepped on a guy's knuckles. That was about the most right. violent he got. Yeah, but that ended up being pretty bad. Okay, so a little late in the episode, but Mike, will you kick us off with the pickup line for this film? 
To be fair to the listener, I couldn't understand this. I had to rely on the transcript. I think it's the shooting script that you found, but yes. here, here's what they say it is. <clears throat> Even if you accept the belief that a high trendex automatically means a rising sales curve, which incidentally I do not accept. So that was it. Mm-hmm. I believe that's when Carrie comes out of an elevator. There's a bunch of people around there. So I think the, the rhubarbing is what made it hard for me to understand. Roger Thornbill comes out of an elevator with his assistant and she is, he is dictating to her and she is taking it down a memo that he is wanting her to send off. As so we see, he's very, very busy. They kind of exchange a couple. I think he gives her a couple marching orders and she, we are to believe, goes back up into the office building and he goes out onto the city streets. And then we just see the hustle and bustle of New York City. New York, New York. Oh, wait, I I shouldn't (laughs) sing that. (laughs) Well, they're in New York, aren't they? No, no, no. I know I meant that's not this movie. (laughs) We should review that movie, though. I really want to. Sure. And that's when we see Alfred Hitchcock. He goes to get on a bus and the doors close. So kind of snubbing him. He doesn't get to get on the bus. And and so it just puts us in that that mindset where we get, you know, the busy streets, the businessmen working. And I think shortly after that is when Thornbill's kind of thrust into the, you know, that that he's done something wrong. He's being accused of something. It's interesting because he's at a nice dinner at a, at a restaurant and these two guys, I guess, a- ask for him by name. And then they just grab him by the elbows and, and shuffle him off to a car. And I, I suppose actually for New York, this is not unreasonable that no one would really give notice to someone being kidnapped. Right. Huh. <laughs> Look, those two guys have a gun on that guy, a third guy, and they put him in a car. Meh, whatever. Well, it even fe- feels like he's not fully, when they first put him in the car, he's just like, hey guys, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, like he's not really aware that the, he's in peril. That bummed me because it's like you're at a work, a business dinner and two strangers show up. You you wouldn't go talk to them. You'd be like, I don't know, have them leave a message. Because then there's even, so he's confused with some, I think he's confused with somebody. They have him confused with somebody. Right. Somehow he runs into his mother. They're discussing, he goes to the person's hotel room And it's almost like a mild annoyance, like I've lost my luggage kind of level of annoyance, except that they're accusing you of killing a person. So he immediately jumps into the role of trying to figure out who killed this person to kind of free his name. Yeah, at first... He just thinks it's a case of mistaken identity, and he's thinking, well, if I can connect with this other guy, George Kaplan, I think is the name of the the false character. I think you're right. I I could then sort this out, but then he gets taken to the estate in in the countryside and apparently forced to drink an entire, entire bottle of rye whiskey or something. Yeah. Which, not to be nitpicky, but (laughs) how do they know it wouldn't kill him? The alcohol poisoning is a thing. Right. And so then they put him in a car and they're driving him around. And 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 if he's drank that much that he's not able to have his wits about him, how did they think he was going to be able to drive? Well, I think the intent was that he wouldn't and they would send him over the cliff in the car and, and they would kill him and make it look like an accident. But then he was too smart for them and he grabbed the wheel and he spun around onto the right and he went on the run. So... 
A lot of times in these podcast kids, I say don't drive while drunk, and that's still a good rule. However, there may be an exception for when you're escaping from a kidnapping. That was probably the wise thing to do is to attempt to operate the motor vehicle while drunk because they were going to kill him. Right. I I felt confused through a lot of this film because shortly after, like when he and his mother are still there in the hotel room and they're trying to figure stuff out, I couldn't tell if, if it was supposed to be his mother or if it was supposed to be his wife, because while she did look o- a little older than him, she only looked about 10 or 15 years older than him. Right. It, there was some dialogue about mother, but it it didn't connect it unless I looked at the IMDb credits. Right. That's how I knew that it was his mother. So that was a bit confusing. Yes. Alfred, and I, and I think maybe Carrie thought he was a little old for the role. So maybe if they had cast someone a little younger... Perhaps it it would have been more obvious mother versus son. Now, I I will at this point mention that costume designer Miriam says that age is really driven a lot by clothing choices. And I don't know if the 1959 viewer would have recognized cues in her clothing that made her be older than than we do, because we're not as familiar Mm. with the fashion of the time. Well, because when you're saying he called her mother, but back then, sometimes the husband would call the wife mother if they had kids. Oh, gosh, yeah. There's some film from like the 80s or 90s where Harrison Ford calls his wife mother throughout the whole film. It's really weird. (laughs) So I just, I felt like there was a lot in this film. And then Hitchcock thought it would be really cool to film in the UN and they wouldn't give him permission. And so we see Roger run into the UN and they couldn't even get permission to film. And so the camera is actually in a car hidden across the street and I didn't see it. I was looking for it. But apparently when Cary Grant gets to the top of the steps, a onlooker, like a just a pedestrian, a random pedestrian, does a double take because he's like, is that Cary Grant? <laughs> See, this is the business of show that even with a big Hollywood production, sometimes they have to resort to guerrilla filmmaking. Right, right. Well, when you want to film in the UN, they're like, no, get out. I don't care who you are. But this is an important thing that the viewer often doesn't know. Yeah. That the exterior and interior can be entirely different buildings. Yes. Or in one case, the interior is on the soundstage. Oftentimes it's not the right, same. Right. We're watching a, a show on Netflix and it said in a house, a house is kind of like one of the characters and the interiors are obviously three, four, ten times bigger than the actual footprint of the house. Right. So mm-hmm. that's one of the great things about put, putting the interior on a soundstage is you can make any interior geometry you want. Now, in this case, I believe they did for the UN, maybe, but also for at Rushmore, they built stuff on the soundstage to mimic it because they couldn't get permission to shoot, which is Certainly possible, awesome for your set people, but expensive. Yes, I won't go into it, but anybody who is interested, there is a documentary on YouTube that I can link to. And there's also a lot of trivia on the IMDb page about them wanting to shoot at Mount Rushmore and not being able to and what the film was going to be called. And this was, you know, kind of Hitchcock apparently had a bunch of ideas and I think he kind of threw a lot of them into this film. <laughs> what if we filmed at Rushmore? Yeah. So if you're interested, check that out. It, it was kind of interesting uh, on that line, since we're talking about kind of behind the scenes, Roger Thornhill, Cary Grant's character, 
his official name is Roger O. And Hitchcock said that, and the O stands for nothing, but he said that he named him after, after studio head David O. Selznick, whose O also signifies nothing. Also, listener Joe, his middle name is just the letter O. And, and I would love... I would love if it came from Roger or Thornhill. I know, that right? That would be a great story. His mom always had a crush on Cary Grant. Uh, many people did. Oh, you found some fun trivia that the film festival South by Southwest is in part related to North by Northwest, correct? Yeah, the guy who founded South by Southwest Big chose fan. that specifically as a callback to North by Northwest, except, of course, Austin is more in the Southwest than the Northwest. So I guess... Seattle could have their own North by Northwest Film Festival. There you go. And, and then we have the whole train, like a large part of this film. And we just talked about another train film, Murder on the Orient Express. There's a lot of this movie is on the train. Right. Now, was it, it happened one night, which was on a bus. Yes. So back then, public tra transport was a big deal. In this case, the question is what sort of set did they have because I don't believe they built it on a soundstage with gimbals and green screens and all of that, right? No, but they did. I thought I remember reading. It's been a couple weeks since we watched this film and I read the IMDb, but I do believe reading. Oh, here, let me look down in my notes because I thought they did build a train. I thought they at some point they had different cars from trains and they assembled them because back then, right, a particular train had specific cars associated with it with amenities. I feel like the studios would have had to have had like mock trains that like as sets because yeah. that was such a common mode of transportation then. Isn't that amazing, right? And to think that there's like the sleeper car and then there's the dining car where you could go and get the a pretty nice car. meal. Yeah, in the bar, that's always a good place for, for drama. For bad stuff to go yeah. down. Yeah. Plot points in the bar. The script had some saucy language, too, because Eva Marie Saint had to redub part of her lines during post-production to satisfy censors. The original line when her and Cary Grant are talking, I think it's when they first met, but if it's not the first time, it's then when they're in her... It's at the dinner table in the dining car. It's oh, like the it first is. time they meet. Oh, okay, it is. And she says, I never make love on an empty stomach. Yeah, because they're in the dining car. And they had to change that line to, I never discuss love on an empty stomach. And then in the final scene, when she and Cary Grant are together and they're embracing in her bed, like they call it the upper berth. It's like a bunk bed kind of. It's she's, I don't know why they were in the top part, but, and then it cuts to a scene where the train is going into a tunnel, not subtle at all. Well, there's also some other dialogue I liked. Something for your sweet tooth, baby, and all your other sweet parts. That was good. <laughs> she says, I'm a big girl. And he says, yeah, in all the right places, too. And Which, uh, even when saying was in no way a big girl. No. Well, only maybe compared to Hollywood, but. Uh, no. And then uh, he says, what could a man do with his clothes off for 20 minutes? <laughs> Which I thought was funny. I think that the, the joke there would be, well, I'm expecting five out of you, sir. But and then it was like, he was in your room. Sure. Isn't everybody. <laughs> so they cast the character of, of Eve as kind of a bit of a round heel to use the term. Oh, uh -huh. and that was kind of her job, right, was to sleep with these people for Van Damme. Yeah. So I guess you could maybe categorize her as like, you know, the classic Fimpital or the the spy seductress. Yeah, I liked I liked her character because 
she was kind of I didn't feel like she was the femme fatale, though, in the sense that she was like the dumb blonde. Oh, no, she was definitely she was a very empowered character for that era. Yeah. Yeah, she was in on it and she had her own, because remember, she's basically a double agent. Yes. So she was more clever than Van Damme was. Right. She was running her own scheme, kind of, as it were. But then she was also falling in love with Cary Grant. Yep. I mean, I could see why, you know, growing up, I always heard his name as being, you know, like this, you know, character that would make the women swoon. And I can, I get it. Like he, he... With his sarcastic kind of delivery, he was very charming. He was kind of like maybe like the Ryan Reynolds or. Yeah, I can see that. Or I was trying to think who would it be today? Clooney. Yes. Yes. Uh, Good one. Yeah, because I don't think I, I don't think he's quite as funny as Ryan Reynolds. No, but he's you're got right. that cool kind of suave debonair that can, that can deliver a sarcastic line. Oh, yeah. That somebody yeah, else He's got wrote. good timing. Yeah. And he's got a nice smile. But he's he's not maybe quite as as quick witted or silly. Right. So under costuming, I have that when Hitchcock saw the costumes that the costume department had put together, the pictures, they just had done drawings. He was like, absolutely not. And he marched down to Bergdorf Goodman with Eva Marie Saint and they just bought all clothes for her to wear. Okay, I have a costume note. Yes. As you may recall, police officers would have a tooled black leather belt called a Sam Brown belt. Mm. I believe that's after the vendor, not after an individual person. Mm -hmm. And it would have, you know, their equipment on it, like their firearm and their handcuffs. These police officers each had two holstered number two pencils on their Sam Brown. Pencils? On their Sam Brown belt. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It completely bumped me. Not only do pencils not make a lot of sense, they're also bright yellow. So they stand out. Oh my God, how did I miss that? Yeah. So I would love if we have a listener who happened to be a police officer in 1959 who's able to call in and tell us, was this standard issue for police officers in 59? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. I thought what you were going to talk about was the gray suit that Cary Grant wore throughout almost the entire film. It became this like bluish gray suit became so popular that it was copied in many, many movies, including Tom Cruise's character in Collateral and Ben Affleck's character in Paycheck. And many, many, many men of the era would copy this, this, you know, kind of like silvery gray blue suit. I I think actually it's still popular today. I I believe that that's what was being referenced in the basketball shorts I'm currently wearing. (laughs) I think they were calling back to North by Northwest. I'm sure you're right. I'm mm-hmm. totally sure you're right. <laughs> did we have some head trauma? Okay, we did have three three notes of head trauma. This is the superfan RJ head trauma section. I think maybe he, he, <laughs> he gets it named. Now, first of all, when Eve shoots Roger on Mount Rushmore, he goes down. And it's quite possible he hits his head on a table or, or the ground when he goes down. He takes a fall. Secondly, not long after that, a ranger punches Roger in the face. And I consider that head trauma. Face is on the head. Uh Uh-huh. And then lastly, Van Damme punches Leonard in the face after he reveals that they're blanks. So there's a couple punches to the face and one possible bounce of a skull off the ground. All right. I know we had a smoochy. Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. Like mid film in in Eve Kendall's birth. But right. um, did we have a couple? So I didn't get time code for that. But yeah, they smooch there. And then also at 
one hour, 48 minutes, 22 seconds. When she says goodbye to Roger, she gives him a smoochie. Is that before, like when they're at Rushmore? Like, yeah, I think that's, there's parting ways, I think. And she's trying to kind of do the, it's just, not I'm gonna just work trouble. Out. You yeah. need to leave. So it's for your own good, Roger. <laughs> but then they come back. Yeah, but they, we don't see a smoochie. We just see the train go in the tunnel. Yeah. Woo-hoo. And we're left to our own imagination as to what they're doing in that <laughs> waka, upper berth. Waka. It's How not the it? train's motion. <laughs> How about a driving review? Okay, so there are quite a few vehicles in this. It's just a good era for, for Detroit. First of all, I want to start out with the 1958 Cadillac Fleetwood 75 is an excellent choice for kidnapping. Notice how large that vehicle it, was. It looked ginormous. You had three adult males in the back seat with room to spare. Yeah. So when you want to kidnap, think a Cadillac. The the fifty nine new type. Yeah, probably Mercedes Cabriolet is a good choice for for running away from kidnappers. So much so that I thought I read that Cary Grant purchased it from production after the filming was done. He liked the car so much. I previously mentioned there's a possible exception for driving while inebriated if you're fleeing kidnappers. Not sure, but I'm willing to talk. There are tons of Fords there. No sponsorship, but a lot of them in there. What I was curious about was there is a 1946 Ford Deluxe pickup that had a refrigerator in the back right before the famous plane scene. And I thought, what an interesting thing. Like, who... (laughs) How often do you ever see a pickup driving down the road with a refrigerator in the back? They just bought it. Well, maybe so, but it just seems like a really odd thing to have in your pickup. But okay. Not in 1959. So gotta love the 58 Lincoln Continental Mark III convertible that she drives at the end of the film. Nice vehicle. I will say one of the things that was awfully fun was he gets in early in the film. Roger gets in the cab and he says to the cab driver, I'm being followed. Can you do anything about it? And he says, yes, I can. I don't think any modern taxi cab driver would respond to, can you lose a tail with yes, I can. (laughs) Right. I love back then in the 50s, cab drivers were aspiring racers and you could get them to drive fast for almost no reason whatsoever. Just, just ask. All righty. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Before we go to the numbers, though, I just want to say that Cary Grant received $450,000 for this movie, a substantial amount for the time, plus a percentage of the profits. He also received $315,000 in penalty fees for having to stay nine weeks past the time when his contract was called, that his contract called for. And Eva Marie Saint made much less than this. So in today's numbers, you pretty much add a zero. So he would have gotten like four and a half million for the movie, which is pretty low for now. I think that's what my... Yeah, no, I think you've said that was your scaling factor. Yeah. It does seem a little low for Star of His Power. Yeah, but even more so for Eva Marie Saint. So I'm glad that at least Pay Parity hopefully has gotten a little bit better. Yeah, it's a good question about whether he was more of a draw than she was. Uh, the first thing that I thought when she came on screen was, wow, she was really good looking. Beautiful. Yeah, that, that's got to put some butts in seats back then. So, yeah. Yeah, only fair. Let's give her four million bucks. Right? So that was the budget. So they couldn't. <laughs> the budget was $4.3 <laughs> One million over what it was originally supposed to be. It was supposed to be about $3 million. 
And Hitchcock went over, obviously, nine weeks. And I think probably happening to build a Mount Rushmore replica probably put him over. So the studio was not thrilled. And a forest, right? Didn't he like have to bring in a hundred trees to a soundstage? The famous scene that you were referencing the other day when we were hanging out with somebody was the helicopter scene. They said they replanted the corn from a high school. First of all, what high school has a cornfield? And second, maybe one. Well, it was Kern County, 1959. I'd buy that. (laughs) But then also like the. If you watch the movie, they all look dead. They, they, yeah, they don't look like they replanted them. I don't know the life cycle of corn. Perhaps someone from <laughs> Iowa could call in and let us know what what is the life cycle for corn. So even though they were over budget by a million dollars, they made it up worldwide. This movie <laughs> brought in thirteen point three million, and that was mostly domestic prices because I don't think that worldwide distribution was as big as it is now and so adjusted for today that's like 130 million Uh, it's a successful film yeah yeah it was a success on imdb it gets an 8.3 out of 10 rotten tomatoes critics love this film at 97 percent, and audiences aren't far behind at 94 percent. it is a two-hour commitment two hour and 16 minutes at that like i said it this rating is approved because it was pre-rating system And it's labeled as an action-adventure mystery film. It did pretty well for awards. It got nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Editing. Cary Grant won for Best Foreign Actor at the David D. Donatello Award, I guess, festival. And it won for Best Picture at the Edgar Allan Poe Awards. And it won the Golden Laurel for Top Action Drama at the Laurel Awards. Huh. Which I don't know if that's key. Never heard of those things, but okay, good for them. But it did well. So there you have it. I always wanted to watch this one because I thought it had a Northwest tie-in. And as Northwest as they got was, was Rushmore. Yeah, kind of. I don't know if I had seen it in its entirety before. And I always find it amazing that... They shoot the scene with the, the the biplane machine gunning him, and they never show us any shots of someone in the plane with the machine gun. Oh, so you don't know, like, who's shooting him. Yeah, apparently... That's what I said. This movie is kind of confusing. Apparently, one of the two guys that kidnapped him was in the plane and dies in the crash. He was the shooter in the plane because you don't see him in the rest of the film. But I just thought that was odd. You'd yes. think 1959... Like if they said, hey, uh, give me a, a biplane with some machine guns on it, that would be right there in the studio lot. Right. And they would have faked it where they had a fan on him. Oh, sure. When right. It was on the ground and they have the fake yeah. sky. He'd be close up. Yeah. With the fake sky behind him and he'd be grinning, grimacing. You know, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, I, I just thought that's such a famous scene. I know I had seen that scene many times, but it was interesting to see the whole film all put together as one. So that does it for North by Northwest. Join us next week when we're going to do Knives Out. And then we will close out this month of mystery with Unusual Suspects. We're going to revisit that one and see what that one's like. Let's see, guys, we did some planning this weekend. I'm so excited for next year. We have almost all the films planned. But if you want to make some last minute suggestions, we could possibly be swayed since nothing is in cement yet. Well, Um, 
Coincidentally, you mentioned that just uh, an hour or two ago, superfan Udo did make a recommendation that I'll share with you off air. Okay, we will add that to the thank you so much to all of our fans. I really appreciate all the good, the help you guys give us when sometimes something needs a little tweak in the episode. We get the we get the heads up and so we can fix it for everybody. And I really appreciate everybody listening. And we hope to include a lot of those listeners that are around the world next year. We've got some kind of some great prizes and different things and different plans that we want to implement. Our little junior producer here in in the family gave us some fantastic ideas that we're going to follow up on. So enjoy, join us for the rest of Mystery Month and never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 